0: Chapter 11 checkpoints Do all your subplots affect the protagonist either externally or internally as he struggles with the story question Readers don't want subplots just because they're interested in or lyrical or provide a nice break from the intensity of the main action Although they may be all these things first and foremost the reader expects They'll be there for a story reason. So, ask yourself. Even if it's tangential, how does this subplot affect the protagonist's pursuit of his goal? What specific information does it give your reader that she needs to know in order to really grasp what's happening to the protagonist? When you leap into a subplot or flashback, can the reader sense why it was necessary that at, that at that very moment? Make sure the logic is on the page, not just in your head. When you leave the main storyline, you want the reader to follow you willingly, not kicking and screaming. When returning to the main storyline, will your reader see things with new eyes from that moment on? You want her to come back to the main storyline feeling as though she has new insight. When the protagonist does something out of character, has it been foreshadowed? Make sure you're giving the reader solid tells along the way, so a reaction will be, "aha." rather than give me a break. Have you given your reader enough information to understand what's happening so that nothing a character does or says leaves her wondering whether she missed something? You never want your reader to have to pause trying to figure out what she's missed, and then, God forbid, leaf back through the book to try to figure it out. The writer's brain on story. Cognitive secret. It takes long-term conscious effort to hone a skill before the brain assigns it to the cognitive unconscious. Here's the story secret, there's no writing, there's only rewiring. Richard P. Feynman said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. We've spent a lot of time looking at stories through the reader's hardwired expectations. What about ours? How does the writer's brain fit into the equation when it comes to creating a story that leaps off the page. Turnabout being fair play. Perhaps it's time to slit down our own DNA under the microscope for a quick See, I'll go first. I noticed a strange thing not too long ago. When I misspell a word, The more I try to figure out how to spell it, the more mangled it gets. If instead I simply retype it without thinking, fast like pulling off a bandaid, nine times out of ten it's spelled correctly. For a while I went around telling people that my brain hasn't known, doesn't know how to spell but my fingers do. Turns out it's my brain after all, which knows more than I think it does, provided I don't think about it. As neuropsychiatrist Richard Restack says, In many cases, we decrease accuracy and efficiency by thinking too hard. He points to an example many of us remember with chagrin, taking multiple choice tests back in school and constantly second guessing our answers. According to studies, if we just stuck with our original gut instinct and moved on to the next question, like the instructions suggested, we would have gotten that A we knew we deserved, instead of, well, never mind. The one lesson we can still take away from that frustrating experience is that often, the harder we try, the worse we do. So, does that mean winging it really is the best bet? Should you forget everything we've been talking about and join the ranks of the Panthers? that is, writers who write solely by the seat of their pants? Probably not before you read the fine print. So, does that mean winging it really is the best bet? Probably not before you read the fine print. stack goes on to say that following your gut works only if you've prepared for the test and know the material. That notion might have been what prompted 17th century writer Thomas Fuller to observe that all things are difficult before they are easy. Indeed, Nobel laureate Herbert Simon estimates that it takes about 10 years to really master a subject, By then, we've gathered upward of 50,000 chunks of knowledge, which the brain has deftly indexed so our cognitive unconscious can access each chunk on its own whenever necessary. Simon goes on to explain that this is why experts can respond to many situations intuitively, that is, very rapidly, and often without being able to specify the process they've used To reach their answers, intuition is no longer a mystery. Antonio Damasio agrees. Outsourcing expertise to the unconscious space is what we do when we hone a skill so finely that we are no longer aware of the technical steps needed to be skillful. We develop skills in the clear light of consciousness, but then we let them go underground, into the roomy basement of our minds. It's through this process that story becomes intuitive for writers and that muscle memory is built the good news is the clock probably started ticking on your 10-year apprenticeship a long time ago you likely already know at least somewhere in your cognitive subconscious that a huge part of the writing process is rewriting with gusto if possible that's why in this chapter We'll examine the deceptive thrill of finishing a first draft. Discussing why seeking no-holds-barred criticism is crucial. Explore why rewriting is an essential part of the writing process. Consider the pros and cons of writers as groups. Look at the benefits of professional literary consultants. And finally, discover a painless way to toughen your hide before heartless strangers begin mercilessly attacking the very essence of your being, red, critiquing your work. First, the high crossing of finish line. You finished your first draft, you're elated, Getty. You can't believe it's actually done. You wanted to give up a million times, but you didn't. You slogged. From the terrifying emptiness of the blank page to the two most beautiful words in a writer's vocabulary, the end. You do exactly what you should go out and celebrate. The next morning, basking in the afterglow of this genuinely magnificent accomplishment, you decide it might be a good idea to reread your manuscript before submitting it to literary agents, just in case there are typos. But within a page or two, you're facing the mystery of the ages. How can scenes that seemed so insanely suspenseful when you wrote them, so completely engaging, so downright profound, suddenly sound so flat and banal? Did monkeys get into your computer while you slept? Before you hit the delete key and decide to take up interpretive dance instead, you should know that this happens to everyone. It's important, not to mention reassuring, to keep in mind that writing is a process. It is rarely possible to address all of a story's trouble spots in a single draft. So don't be hard on yourself. It's not you, it's the nature of the beast. If there's one thing every successful writer's process includes, it's rewriting. Talent aside, in my experience, what separates writers who break through from those who don't is perseverance, mixed with the wholehearted desire of a zealot to zero in on what isn't working and fix it. Don't believe me? What about John Irving who said, Half of my life is an act of revision. Or Dorothy Parker, who said, I can't write five words, but I can change seven. Or Carlin Levitt, author of The Girls in Trouble, who rewrote her ninth novel several times before showing it to her agent, then rewrote it four more times based on the agent's notes. The book sold immediately, and then she wrote another four drafts, this time for her editor. Or literary literary young adult author John H. Ritter, who estimates he rewrites each novel 15 times before publication, or UCLA, UCLA screenwriting chairman Richard Walter, who reports that former student and exceedingly successful screenwriter David Coepp will happily rewrite for the studios until about the 17th draft, at which point he gets a little cranky. To sum up the point these writers are making, Let's turn to Ernest Hemingway, who with characteristic blunt eloquence so famously said, At first all first drafts are shit, which doesn't let you off the hook. It's not a license for unbridled self-expression, or not to try hard from hard from word one because it doesn't really count. It does big time because from here on out, it's a raw material you'll be working with straying from, reshaping, pairing, parsing, and then lovingly polish. First drafts count, even if they're usually pretty bad. But remember, there's a huge difference between trying hard, which you want to do, and trying to make it perfect from the first word on, which is impossible and just might shut you down. The goal isn't beautiful writing. It's to come as close as you can to identifying the underlying story you're trying to tell. So, whether it's your first draft or your 15th, relax. Instead of thinking each draft has to be it, just try to make your story a little bit better than it was in the previous draft. After all, stories are layered. And everything that happens affects everything else, and on every level, no less. That means that when you remedy one problem, you'll most likely have shifted something somewhere else that will then need to be addressed and so on. The point is, it's impossible to address every trouble spots in a single draft. So why make yourself crazy trying? However, writers have a hard-wired advantage when it comes to keeping track of who does what to whom and why. It may not be a superpower, but it comes in pretty handy, especially as you begin your rewrite. Let me explain. Embracing feedback. The importance of getting outside feedback, and then actually listening to it, can't be overstated. What's more, the trickier still, you want to be sure that the person giving you feedback is capable of it. This doesn't just mean they have the ability to zero in on what pulled them out of the story, but that when they see it go off the rails, they'll tell you. Consider the story of a woman we'll call Zoe, who had written a memoir. She grew up in a small community where her mother was a local celebrity, thrusting Zoe into the limelight from kindergarten on. Even more compelling, her personal life sounded like a very successful movie of the week, the kind that makes you laugh, makes you cry, and leaves you with an authentic sense of hope. The trouble was she did not know how to tell a story without a genuine narrative thread. Read, no story question, no internal issue. The book didn't build. So it wasn't long before what little momentum it started with dissolved, leaving in its wake a series of disjointed vignettes. Somewhere around chapter 3 it went flat and it stayed that way. It didn't matter that each individual scene was well-written, because without an overarching context to give all the scenes meaning, the reader didn't know what to make of them or where the memoir was headed. But Zoe did. She saw it very clearly. Why wouldn't she? She lived it. She'd shown the manuscript to close friends and an old-age professor, all of whom told her how much they loved it and how well written it was. So when her agent gave her specific notes for the rewrite, instead of listening, she spent hours explaining why each suggested change was unnecessary and why everything that seemed to be missing was actually there. She felt it was good enough. She was a very likable young woman who had been through a hell of a lot uh, all her memoir attested and it soon became clear she wasn't going to back down. So, the manuscript was submitted, as is, to editors at 20 publishing houses. These editors didn't know her at all, nor had they heard her lengthy explanations for the things that they instantly saw weren't working. Every editor was, submi- it was submitted to turned It Down, each rejection letter echoing the notes the writer had already heard from her agent and blithely dismissed sure her friends thought it was perfect but they were already familiar with her story so they automatically filled in whatever blanks she'd inadvertently left and even more dangerous they loved her which meant they were predisposed to like what she'd written not to mention quite impressed that she'd sat down and written an entire book in the first place. In other words, what made it a page-turner for them wasn't her storytelling skill. Does that mean that when they told her they thought it was a great book, they were lying? Of course not. It means the standard they applied to her manuscript wasn't the same one they, w- they use when they walk into a bookstore, pull a random book from the shelf, and start reading. However, they didn't know that. And to further complicate the matter, chances are they couldn't have told her what their criteria for loving a book actually are, anyway. It's like that old saw: I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Which means it's a gut feeling. Or in the case of pornography, sometimes that feeling is a little further south. The truth is, it's almost impossible to differentiate between the gut feeling you get when you're reading a fabulous book and the feeling you get when you're reading a manuscript written by a close friend. It's surprisingly easy to misattribute the cause of a gut feeling. For instance, there's a classic experiment in which an attractive woman approached men in the middle of a scary, heart-pounding suspension bridge over a deep gorge and after asking them to fill out a questionnaire supposedly for a class project she gave them her phone number she then did likewise with an equal number of men after they had crossed the bridge and were sitting on a bench recovering around 65 percent of the men on the bridge called her compared with 30 percent of those on the bench whose hearts were no longer pounding when she approached them that's to say A majority of them had mistaken an adrenaline rush of fear for the giddiness of attraction. In the same way, friends and family tend to misattribute the adrenaline surge they feel when they read your book to their appreciation of your prowess as a writer, rather than the thrill of knowing you actually wrote it. This isn't to say you may not actually have written a Cracker Jack book, but chances are they won't be able to tell the difference. In other words, love is blind. And when it's not, it tends to be supportive. When you read a friend's writing, your first allegiance is to your friend. So even when your gut tells you that it's probably not time for her to quit her day job, you take into consideration how hard she worked, how much the book means to her, and the fact that you don't want to hurt her feelings, or start a fight. The same is true with acquaintances, no one wants to be the bearer of bad news. It inherently stirs up strong emotions, in this case, most likely the kind of conflict-induced tension that the manuscript in question probably isn't generating, but as we know, or as in books, conflict is what draws us in, in real life, it's something most people will go out of their way to avoid. Which is why, when you read a friend's manuscript and find it completely devoid of tension. The last thing you want to do is actually create some by mentioning it. So you find things, nice things to say, love the premise, fabulous thesis, great sense of place, I really felt like I was in downtown Barstow, and Tiffany's clever retort when she caught Tad rifling through her underwear drawer, priceless. Your friend beams and you haven't told a single lie, except by omission. But hey, you tell yourself you're not a professional critic. Maybe the book really is great, but you're just too much of an adult to see it. And so you breathe a heartfelt sigh of relief and enthusiastically give the manuscript back to of the doubt. Other give the manuscript the benefit of the doubt. But as a writer... Is that something you would really want? The benefit of the doubt? Hey, why not? When you've sweated blood over something give it given it your all, you want to hear that, that it's great, perfect, brilliant, in fact. And then again, would you want your daughter to have been to have been given the benefit of the doubt throughout the medical school or the pilot of the jumbo jet you're about to board? But wait, doesn't your story belong to you? Who says writers have to please everyone? First and foremost, don't we have to write for ourselves to speak our truth? Maybe. But ask yourself, when you read a novel, do you really ever want to know the writer's truth? Do you even think about it? The truth we're looking for is something we can relate to ourselves. Writers who focus on their truth tend to forget that as far as the reader is concerned, writing is about communication, not self-expression. That brings us to another myth, whose neck we might not want to wring. Here's the myth, writers are rebels who are born to break the rules. But the reality is, successful writers follow the damn rules. Writers are often rebels. We buck the tide by trade, we have a fresh take on the familiar, And our goal is to translate that vision into a story so others can step into our world. Since we're all about originality, why should we have to follow a tired old set of standards anyway? Can't we just peel the girdle off and breathe freely? After all, we make up stories, can't we make up the rules too? It's at about this point in the argument that someone always starts talking about Cormac McCarthy. He doesn't follow the rules, and he won the Pulitzer. My response is always, he does follow the rules, but he's done it in such an idiosyncratic way that it's easy to take his style for a new set of rules. Yes, there are masters out there with such utterly distinct voices that they have the ability to instill an intoxicating sense of urgency in ways that seem to defy analysis. It's in their DNA, which is why it cannot be duplicated. They're in a rare field minority. If we could write like them, we'd have long since been published, and universities would offer graduate seminars an our work. On the other hand, the vast majority of extremely successful writers don't write like them, either. And here's something a little more sobering. For every successful writer who seems to, to flout the rules, there are millions along the way who try to actually flout them, and whose manuscripts crashed and burned as a result. You just never heard about them because, well, they crashed and burned. Chances are, they either ignored the feedback they got or worse, never asked for it.